Welcome to the Brian Kane Podcast and today's guest on the podcast, coming from Singapore, by way of Cincinnati, Ohio, the former UFC middleweight champion, the UFC Hall of Fame fighter and current vice president of One Martial Arts in Asia. Please welcome to the podcast, Rich Ace Franklin. Man, I tell you what, Bruce better be looking out because somebody's gunning for his job, apparently. Rich, how you doing, man? I've been practicing that all day. <laughs> I'm good, man. I'm good. It's uh, The sun has come, come up here finally. And once again, Brian, uh, I was part of the 5 a.m. club. and But I did not I did not get up this morning to do my road work. I, I didn't have enough time. I had some other things I needed to do. So I'll get my road work in a little bit later today. But by God, this stupid 5 a.m. club is infectious, and I'm blaming you for it. And I don't like it. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, it's all, all it is is about resetting that biological clock to getting up and dominating the day and not letting days dominate you, champ. Well, you know what? The days don't ever dominate me. I just start dominating the day typically around 7.30 rather than 5.15. Well, you're probably, you're probably staying up a couple hours later than I am too, though. So it all, yeah. it all evens out in the end, man. As long as you're getting that sleep and getting that recovery and you're up being aggressive and on the attack, I'm sure things are going to work out for you. Well, see, that's the problem because, you know, with everything that's going on with the, you know, the pandemic in the world, we've... We've made, I've had to make a lot of switches lately. You know, we just, we did the the first episode of the podcast with you and now I've transferred everything to my apartment. So I technically have a studio set up here and was working late yesterday. So I was up until midnight, but once again, up at five in the morning. So, uh, although I'm part of the 5am club, still not getting that rest and recovery that I needed, but we'll work on that tonight when I get to bed. Not to no no doubt there, you know, and as a former former high school teacher turned mixed martial arts world champion. I'm sure you've had a lot of those late nights, whether it's grading exams or preparing for a fight or training. But Rich, tell us, man, as a guy that start, was a high school teacher, how did you ever get into and develop a passion for mixed martial arts, man? Well, like every other boy growing up in, in the U.S., I, was, I, I, I had a dream of being one of two things. I either wanted to be a professional athlete or a superhero. And I was fresh out of superpowers. So I went with the second best option and I really wasn't gifted with that, that God given talent to, uh, pursue athletics. I played, I played football my whole life. And as a high school player, I didn't even start for the high school team. And so I got into martial arts my senior year of high school, just as something to do to keep me athletically active. And because the football season had ended. And so here I was, had been an athlete my whole life. And I'm thinking, well, now what am I going to do? Lo and behold, I get into martial arts. I'm doing this just as a hobby. I train, I go to school to be a high school teacher, a majoring in mathematics. And the entire time I'm in college, I just one of those very driven goal oriented people who, if I was not part of a study group, for example, or on campus doing something productive, then I was heading over to my training sessions. And I just did this because I love doing it. Not, I didn't, at the time, I didn't have any aspirations of pursuing that professionally. Fast forward the clock, I'm, I'm teaching high school. And this is several years later through all this years of training in college and a couple years of training as a teacher. And I start thinking, I've actually really acquired a skill for this. And this is something that I can consider doing full time. And I had discussions with some of the people that were closest to me at the time, one of which was my, my manager, my, my fight manager, Monty Cox. And Monty said, yeah, you know, I think this is something that you could really do well, but there are no champions in this world. There are no part-time champions is what he said to me. So my fourth year of teaching, I had to make a decision between either, I I guess, technically 
retiring. I'm making the quotation marks with my fingers or, uh, you, you know, just kind of keep continuing with martial arts as a hobby. And so I decided to, to walk away from teaching and give this a shot. And uh, the rest is history. It ended up paying off for me. So it's kind of like you were, you were the real life. Here comes the boom. Uh, essentially. Yeah. You know, actually Kevin and I spent a lot of time together. He's, he's been to many of, of my matches and we spent a lot of time together and I spent a lot of time telling him a lot of stories about my career as a young professional. This is pre big stage days, but in some of the organizations that I competed for and I'd competed in like fairgrounds where the cage broke and chickens running around the warm-up room and stuff like that like these this was just normal for those times and so he I'm, I'm sure he had taken some of those stories and applied them to the script for sure it's amazing man and then even like once your career started taking off you know it wasn't all like you ascended right from the high school classroom to becoming a world champion i mean there were definitely struggles there was self doubt despite all the success that you had could you talk a little bit about like even once your career started taking off some of that self doubt or the struggles that kind of you went through as as you were on the journey for sure and interestingly enough though brian I, just a little side note on that is when you say that it didn't just all of a sudden take off it kind of felt like it at the time things blew up so quickly. I always jokingly tell people that at one point in my life, I was this guy who would put my signature on a piece of paper that a kid didn't want to take home to his parents. And it was called a progress report. (laughs) And then you fast forward the clock. And just within a couple years, I was a guy who was kids. These same kids were waiting in line for four hours to get an autograph. I don't know how that actually happens to a person. Really. I, I still, to this day, scratch my head actually thinking about that. And it wasn't an overnight process in the sense of the actual process of getting there, because this is something that had started for me in high school, even unbeknownst to me at the time. But when when the ball started rolling and, and the momentum happened, it happened quickly. But I had plenty of moments of self-doubt. I can remember I can remember teaching and I had competed in a in a show in Evansville, Indiana, and I competed against a guy by the name of Gary Myers, who at the time was a UFC veteran. And I had a good showing against him and competed really well, won with a third round uh, knockout kick to the head. And then there was a, a show on TV late at night. It was um, it was called, um, oh gosh, uh, what was it called? Uh, it was run by it was run by Joel Gold. Uh, it, the name is this full contact, full contact. I can't remember. It was an MMA show and Joel Gold had run the show and Joel Gold was, um, you know, somebody that was known in the industry at the time. And he was the host of the show. And, and on this, this talk show was, it was one of these shows that at the time, I mean, there, there wasn't a huge fan base for mixed martial arts at the time and, and the sport was still growing and it was still banned in a lot of the States. The, the state athletic commissions didn't know how to deal with a new sport. And, but I remember coming home and, and people that were in the industry knew that this was the place to get information. And I was watching the show and I can remember listening to him breaking down that match between me and Gary. And he's, he it just at one point he said, this is a kid you're going to want to keep your eyes on because he's got a future and he's going to make waves in the, in mixed martial arts. And I remember hearing that at the time and thinking, Wow there are actually other people watching me. This is not just about me on this pursuit of improving myself as a person, this pursuit of excellence. There's now, I felt this sudden pressure. And I remember hearing that and, and actually mentally considering walking away from the sport altogether because I, there, there's just the amount of pressure that I'd suddenly felt 
was so tremendous. And I just had this lack of confidence in that moment. And I think if I would have let that that lack of confidence overwhelm me at that point in time and actually push me from what would inevitably be my future, I, I mean, imagine how differently my life would have turned out. Yeah. And I mean, and at the time, kind of Richard, when you emerged on the scene in, in MMA, I think there was definitely a stigma of what mixed martial arts was and what a mixed martial arts fighter looked like. And you kind of blew that out of the water as an ambassador for the sport. Did you ever feel like that pressure of being kind of the face of an organization or like really being a part of the guard of changing a stigma around a sport? Not really. And it's it's an interesting concept as I sit and think about this because I'm doing work on the other side of the planet for one championship. And a lot of the martial artists that we work with here are so steeped in traditional martial arts culture in their respective countries with whatever art it is that they're practicing that 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 same stigma doesn't exist on this side of the planet that it did in the U.S. as far as this stereotype of what people back in the early 2000s when you thought of uh, mixed martial arts, which at the time was referred to as uh, many different things, no holds barred, um, full, you know, full contact fighting, uh, valley to do was another phrase that was used, but there was this, this vision or this stereotype of what people thought as shaved head tattoos, bar brawls and everything associated with that. And here I was this, you know, good old fashioned Midwest American pie, bring home the mom kind of young boy who was a high school math teacher, educated and fairly well-spoken that suddenly the, the, the sport, the industry, the organization, everybody could lean on like, Hey, look, smart people do this too. And, and so it kind of changed things. But a lot of that stemmed back to the traditional training, because when I started my martial arts at the time, mixed martial arts didn't exist in the U S. So we were still doing things like karate, for example. And I started in a traditional Japanese uh, or Okinawan Shonru karate. And my instructor, his son had come home from the Marine Corps and I started learning a little bit of Muay Thai that he had learned over this overseas when he was doing some of his, uh, you know, some of his stints overseas and whatnot. And then qu quickly started doing that. And then it branched out to uh, jujitsu. But the point is, is that I started with this traditional background and it's kind of the same situation that I have work doing the work that I'm doing on this side of the planet, that, that, that stereotype doesn't exist, but it really was important at the time, at that point in time in history for the growth of the industry. You know, and, and your career started to take off, you know, like a lot of people, there was a struggle to maintain balance in your life. What was that like? And how did you end up kind of creating more of a balanced perspective as you got more fame and more notoriety and won a championship? Yeah, that's, that was probably one of the most difficult things that I had to deal with in my career, because like I said, what it seemed like overnight, once once the momentum hit, it it really did hit quickly because I I quit teaching full time in two thousand and two, and then my title fight was in two thousand and five in June of that year. Now I was still teaching part time in an at risk program for some for those n next couple years, and I, I was doing that two maybe three days a week at the most. Some you know sometimes two days, sometimes three days a week. And this was just uh, an off-campus at-risk program where the kids were doing all their work on computers. And so I remember that in 05 that year, I had competed against Ken Shamrock in March. And then I was offered the title fight in June. And the school year ended. It was June 4th. And the school year ended something, say, like May 26th. So I was still teaching part-time all the way up until May 26th. So I was still living this 
fairly normal life, uh, fairly regular kind of thing. And then I remember telling the director of that program at the time, like, hey, I'm not going to be returning after June because me competing against I, I had competed against Evan Tanner in the title fight that June and the winner of that title fight became the coach on the second season of the ultimate fighter and so I was already telling him in my mind and this was the confidence I had at the time it's crazy how we talk about going through uh, periods of you know questioning your questioning your ability being you know unconfident whatever to this period of confidence I just said to him outright like after June my, my life is going to end up changing changing because I'm going to win this win this match and in my mind it was just inevitable that I was going to win and then be the coach on season two of the ultimate fighter and life just took off at that point I was suddenly went from literally two weeks prior to that teaching part-time in a high school at-risk program to suddenly filming a television show. And once the filming of that show was over, I was on this whirlwind PR tour of everything from magazine interviews to cover shoots to uh, appearances at things like Maxim parties and stuff like that. And constantly, I was all over the place just jet setting. And I went from being a person who had probably been on a plane maybe two or three times in my life to somebody who was flying over a hundred thousand miles a year, almost what seemed like overnight. And for something to happen that quickly, there is no manual for how to maintain a normal life. Everything from personal relationships to even just your training schedule, it puts such a strain on your training schedule and all this new sensory input is, is it's, it's tough to deal with. It's, it's a difficult thing to manage. And fortunately for me, this happened at a time where I was say, in my late twenties, right around the thirty-ish mark, and which is much different than somebody who is just fresh out of college, like a, a 21, 22 year old kid being offered a, a contract with the NFL, for example, where you suddenly have a five million dollar signing bonus and life is completely different. I can't imagine having to deal with that at the age of twenty-one. But it, it, that was the most difficult thing: is constantly maintaining maintaining that that balance between the two because. If you weren't being pulled for some sort of PR event, then you were uh, managing training camps, having to train out out of town. I mean, for one of one of my matches for the Anderson Silver rematch, I conducted my entire camp in the middle of uh, Wyoming in a little town called Pinedale, where the population is just a couple thousand people, or at least at the time it was. And I sequestered myself like a like a Rocky Four training camp in the middle of the mountains in the snow. And so, you know, when you disappear for six, eight weeks at a time and then suddenly you have a match and then you come back and now you got PR to do on top of it, it really wreaks havoc on your personal life. If you could go back and knowing what you know now and kind of get the Rich Franklin of just everything you just described. So winning the Evan Tanner fight, becoming a UFC champion. Now you're a coach on, on the Ultimate Fighter 2. If you could rewind and go back and have a conversation with yourself about, hey, man, here's what's coming you need to do this differently than you're going to. What would you have said to yourself? I think for me, part of, well, let me, let me just say this. There was always this pressure that I only had a, a small window, like earning window, a small window of opportunity with your career. And it's true as an athlete, you, if you have a 10 year career as an athlete, you're blessed. And that's about what my, the length of my career at the pinnacle, but I always operated and a lot of the decisions that I made were as if my time were running out. And, and so I think I would go back and I, the, the advice I would give my younger self is just one word, breathe. That's it. Breathe. 
everything everything is going to work out the way that it should and all all you really need to do is focus on your your training and and winning and and being productive and stuff like that um because what ends up happening and you you know we talk about the the mvp process before brian and you know you and i have talked about this and we talked about like the precursor of this when you and i were working together but your principles and understanding what your principles are and it's easy to kind of maybe I don't know, bend or, or, or just temporarily put those on hold, uh, because you suddenly, Oh, well, I do, I need to, I need to do this match. Like, you know, I know that I'm going to be training through Christmas and I know that I just, I, kn- I just fought a match a couple months ago, but I'm going to, I need to do this because my, my window of opportunity here is, is short. And so I got to take advantage of these chances, these opportunities while I can. And so you start making say compromise judgments on stuff like that. When, when in fact that time is irreplaceable, and so, you know, I, I, that's, I would go back and, and, and just tell myself to breathe and put things in perspective. You know, when you talk about breathing and putting things in perspective and it sounded like rich, you definitely created like a forced sense of urgency for because, sure. Because you knew that as an athlete, you don't, it doesn't last forever. You can't stay on top of the mountain forever. So talk about that forced sense of urgency that you created for yourself to do the work that it, it took. But then on the flip side, also being able to breathe and stay balanced because it sounds like they're opposites, but I think they actually really go together. Yeah, for sure. Well, they're, they're opposites depending on how you actually um, position these two things against each other. You know, I've, in, in my life now, I always remind myself of, um, you know, there's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, talk about how uh, you can't serve two gods. Like you, you can't serve two gods simultaneously because you'll either love the one and hate the other or vice versa. And so, for example, maybe you're the kind of person that likes to sleep in on a Saturday, but you're also the kind of person that likes to uh, get fitness results. But these two things, they're really contradictory to each other. And so you, 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 you can't do both of them at the same time. You know, typically, like if you're going to be the kind of person that sleeps in, as you and I've talked about before, you have the most time in the mornings and, and at night before you go to bed and you've just wasted that time. And you're typically going to let your let your aspirations get pushed aside by something else that that uh, becomes more more important. And so, you know, with my career and this pressure of only having a limited amount of time, you what you what you need to do is you need to keep in perspective of what the, the, the most important things are because what ends up happening and you and I had talked about this recently in a conversation where we were talking about spinning the plates and, and I had told you that at that time it was, I was spinning plates, but as the years or as the days went on in my career, I was adding more and more and more plates to spin. And you had made the best comment to me about, well, you know, what you need to do is get those plates all spinning in the same direction. And I don't think at the time that I was getting the plates spinning all in the same direction. And so these two concepts of, you know, understanding your principles, but at the same time, having this limited time frame were really kind of contradictory to each other rather than working in unison the way that they could. And I think at the time, you know, you're, everything was so chaotic for me that I didn't have a good system of sitting down and truly prioritizing things. And even pr- particularly within my career of prioritizing the things that were important and the things that were urgent versus the things that were not nearly as important or not nearly as urgent and creating this priority chart and making sure that you're only taking care of those top priority things professionally so that it doesn't step over the things in your life personally. Because I think what ends up happening 
because you feel so much pressure is that something that's in your life professionally that may not have this sense of urgency ends up being categorized as something that's more important than something in your professional life that perhaps does have a sense of urgency. And, and you start to lose track of those kinds of things and, and unless you have a really good process for that. And it, it took time. And I think part of the reason why that took time, like I said, is because the chaos just came upon me so quickly. Yeah, you know, Rich, so much good stuff, man, that you're throwing out here. And, and I want to come back to a couple of things that you mentioned where you talked about you know, living with a set of principles. Mm-hmm. What are the principles that drive the life of Rich Franklin? Oh man, I, I don't know. There's like, like 767 of them. Um, <laughs> what's, what's one that you feel like if you had to say, this is the keystone principle or a keystone principle in your life, I mean, what would, be, what would be an example of one for our listeners? But, you know, something like, uh, like in, integrity, you know, um, if you say, like, if you say that if you stand for a certain thing, like making sure you stay true to that kind of thing, you know, things about like my faith or my family or something like that. Um, other principles that, that, you know, things like, um, discipline, um, staying true to your, your discipline. You know, one, one of the things, I mean, I did a lot of things really well in my career, for example, is that I've, I've always been a disciplined person. So I never let, uh, the fame and the, the, I'm fame in question and quotation marks, but I never let that stuff sidetrack me from what was truly important. I never, you know, I was always maintained my normal training routine. I was at my practices. You can look at my coaching staff. It, it basically maintain, I maintained the same coaching staff through my entire career. Even after Matt Hume and I started working together, which was all about the same time that I started working with Joel, you, and some things had changed. I still never got rid of my original coaching staff because I was never displeased or looking to just, you know, drop old people or new people. I did my, for example, the, the agreement that I had with my, my fight manager was a handshake agreement and we operated on that my entire career. And we're, I would, I would continue operating with him on any kind of in business ever with a handshake agreement. And I pride myself on being that kind of person. So there were a lot of things that, I mean, I, I don't think I ever lost my core principles. I never became that kind of guy that was showing up at family parties with the, with the Ferrari and stuff like that, which would be just a really terrible thing to do because I grew up from a very, from very humble and poor beginnings. And to suddenly be that guy who's, you know, like, Hey, look at me, everybody. And I, I started, there's the allure of that pulling you that direction, but these kind of principles, like I, I stayed true to these kind of things. And, and I, and I believe at the time I had several good people in my life that were, were keeping me uh, grounded. But at the same time, you know, when all this chaos begins, you get surrounded by a lot of yes, yes people in your life, like people that's just like, yeah, 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 champ. Yeah, you deserve this. And, and so you have to be careful about the people that you surround yourself with and, 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 you know, cipher through what's good for you and what's not good for you. Well, I see that so often too, with a lot of the professional athletes I work with guys coming out of college first round draft picks and signing for, you know, millions of dollars. And then next thing you know, they're like a human ATM machine and, and they don't know who to go to, to get an actual legit, honest answer. They're just getting a yes from everybody because nobody wants to be the one who's, you know, rocking the boat. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things I was blessed with is a group of friends that, um, you know, didn't have a hard time that, I mean, it was easy for them to give me a hard time, but I, more importantly, when you were messing things up, I was surrounded by people that were like, Hey bro, you're off course. Hmm. And they never, and it's like a GPS, right? That you start to get off course, boom. And they bring you back before you can get so far or off course that you get lost. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I always say this, like at the time, um, you know, Beth, my, my wife, she was, she was my, probably my moral compass through a lot of that stuff at that time. And I had it, had it not been for a couple good people like that in my life, like some good moral anchors, uh, things like even staying in church and stuff like that, it would be easy to drift in the wrong direction. It's easy. You know, Rich, one of the principles I think that I would have used to describe you is humility. And I know you were a big Barry Sanders fan growing up. And I know how after fights in Vegas, I, you know, I've been to championship fights with fighters and they win and they go and they have the after party and there's a big celebration. And, you know, a lot of fighters now in the news for probably taking that too far and, and getting themselves into trouble. But you were never a guy who really celebrated. And, you know, why was that? What was that? Was that something that was intentional for you about not celebrating or was it just something you were not into? No, I mean, you know, you, you brought up Barry Sanders and growing up as a, a kid watching him compete, like you're watching him play. And well, let me, let me stop. First of all, I got to meet Barry at a, um, an autograph expo in Cleveland one year and I didn't know I was going to meet him and my management has set this up and I suddenly walk behind these curtains and Barry Sanders is standing there and I'm like, holy crap, is a probably the first and only time in my life I've been starstruck really because I grew up watching this guy and I really respected him as an athlete because every time he scored a touchdown, you, I think maybe I saw him spike a ball once or twice in his entire career. And he just, every time he crossed the goal line, he crossed the goal line as if that not only was it his job, but he expected to cross the goal line. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to celebrate because I knew that I was going to get in this end zone. And so it doesn't call for celebration. And I kind of I, I treat I treated my career the same way uh, in in the sense that you know when I won there there are, you can see a couple matches where I got a little excited but when I won I, I you almost never celebrated I never never really did anything too crazy and because I expected to win and it's not because I didn't expect to win because I thought of myself as some something great or somebody great as much as I put in the work. And I knew that I put in the work to do the things that I wanted to do or needed to do in order to win that match. So when the bell, the final bell rung and the hand was getting raised, I figured that it would be mine and, and because I did the work. And so, you know, I, I always, I guess, maintain that humble attitude because it's like, well, I'm just doing what I, what I trained to do. And so now it's time for me to get back in the gym, get back to training because the next one's coming. And I think that's what, that's what great athletes do. I always, I always told myself, I'm never going to focus on, on past, you know, like past performances. And it's always about what's coming next, which is why, like, I guess, Brian, when you talk about being humble, I don't even have an ego, like an ego room or an ego wall in my house. I don't have any of my belts hanging. I don't have my hall of fame trophy out. I, I have very few pictures. If you came into my home, you probably wouldn't even, you wouldn't even be able to tell that I was, that I was a professional athlete because I don't have any of that stuff out. Uh, and, and the way I, I view that is, you know, people will ask you like, what is, what are you most proud of? Like what accomplishment are you most proud of? And I don't really, I don't really reflect on my accomplishments and think like, wow, I did this and that's great. And I should be proud. And that's not to say that I don't ever think like I've done some great things in my life and some cool things, but I, I had a great career, for example. And so a lot of people will say, oh, you know, well, that was rich. And he was, you know, I'll always be associated with being a, a UFC middleweight champ, for example. But I have a lot of great stuff going on now. The things that I work on now with over here at One Championship and the project I'm doing with One Warrior Series and the things I've done on this side of the planet, in my mind, I'm doing things that are just as great and just as epic, if not more epic, than what I was doing as a professional athlete. So for me, I'm always looking like the you know, you talk about uh, being present and in the moment. It's like I live my life that way. 
I don't think about what I'm going to accomplish 10 years from now and how great I'm going to be. And I don't think about what I accomplished yesteryear and how great I was. It's like this moment that I'm in right now, I'm, I'm doing some great stuff and, uh, and I have some, some really good things to brew. And so I'm always focused on what the moment that I'm in and the, the process that I have going on and the embitterment or the, the standard of excellence that I'm trying to pursue with whatever it is I'm involved in at that point in my life. And have you always had a perspective like that? Or is that something that kind of materialized and grew for you as you grew and, and got more perspective in life? I, yeah, I think maybe I, it's, it's difficult for me to kind of rewind the clock to a young, young version of me. And when I say young, I mean like a child, I'll say this. There are certain aspects of me that I think of that as a young kid, for example, even in elementary school or junior high, when it came to a sport, I was the first kid on the field and I was the last kid off the field. I've always been that way. I've been that way with my schoolwork. I've been that way with, with pretty much anything that I want to pursue in life. And, you know, I, I believe that I believe when you and I've talked about this, that you're going to do the greatest thing in life, the way that you do the smallest thing in life. And so we talk about process and you and I've talked about like more routines and things like that. And when I get up in the morning, taking the time to make my bed and not just throwing the cover on there, but making sure that it's put on neatly and, and all those kinds of things. And, you know, I take the time to make my bed in the morning and it's a process that I go where I'm, I'm going to put that effort in making sure that something is done right. And I've always been that kind of person. So when you talk about some of these things, like have I always been this kind of person? I think that 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 seed has been there my entire life. It's something that I've been born with, but being able to cultivate that throughout the years is something that I've been able to do. And perhaps it's not something that I consciously set forth to do, but just part of the natural process of pursuing things. So you said, let me make sure I got this right, because that was one of the best quotes I've gotten in a long time was, do the greatest thing the same way you do the smallest thing. Exactly. You know, Rich, I think when you, when you take that approach and you look at confidence and when you're stepping inside of a cage and, you know, I've had a chance to get to know five UFC world champions, some of those guys you've been inside of the octagon with, and all of them at times have asked about confidence. How do I get more confidence? And I think if there was one question that I get when I work with college teams or even pro athletes outside of mixed martial arts, they, they always want to say, how do I get more confidence? Where does Rich Franklin's confidence come from? And if you were speaking to an athlete who said, Rich, how do I get more confidence? What would you say? Well, look, in order to be confident, you're going to have to have a certain level of success. I mean, you know, success breeds confidence and then confidence breeds more success and then more success breeds more confidence. But before you get to that successful point is well, how do you start with confidence? Gr granted, as uh, as a champion, I was much more confident as an athlete than I was as a newcomer, perhaps. But the reality is that, you know, you get those the, the, the whole confidence starts with your thought process. You know, you get up in the morning and, and the thoughts that you allow to enter your head are the things that will determine your confidence. It, you know, your thoughts become your actions. This is one of those kind of cliche statements that a lot of people use. And it's so true. Um, but from there, you know, these thoughts, they, they, you start to build into other things. Like you create routines and these routines, then what, you know, whether it's a practice for something or whether you're making your bed in the morning, these routines uh, develop skills and those skills as you refine them become sharper and sharper and the ability to refine these skills and make you sharper 
only reinforces the thoughts that you put into your head about how you're going to accomplish something great or how you're going to win this next match or how you're going to nail that promotion at your job or whatever it is that you are struggling with. And so, you know, it starts with the thought process and then it develops into your actions. And then those actions, they can, they continually just build upon each other until you get to the point where it's your game day, whatever that game day is, the presentation, the promotion, the match, the game, whatever the, the recital that you're, you're going up for. And then you succeed. And once you succeed, it only breeds more confidence, which helps the thought process that in turn, um, you know, only reinforces those routines and so on and so forth. So the circular thing just keeps going in the direction that you want it to go in. But it all starts with the seed of a thought. Every day I talk with coaches and trainers who ask some version of the same question. How can I get my athletes to stay focused and calm under pressure when the game is on the line? How can I help my clients make better decisions even when it's hard? How can I get my clients and athletes to refocus and get back on track when they mess up their diet, miss a workout, make a bad play or have a bad game, and not let one failure spiral into more struggles? I'm Brian Kane, and for the past two decades, I've been a mental performance coach to some of the top coaches, athletes, and performers on the planet. And now I've created a mental performance mastery coaches certification course to teach you every strategy and technique that I've honed over the past two decades to help my clients and athletes close the gap from where they were to where they want to be and win, including UFC world champions, Olympic medalists, Heisman Trophy winners, Cy Young Award winners, and Major League Baseball. It's worked for them and it will work for you. Head over to briancane.com and click on certification and join our team of mental performance mastery certified coaches in helping your clients and athletes achieve results that they've only dreamed of with our 10 pillars of mental performance mastery system, helping you and your clients close the gap from where you are to where you want to be. You know, I think when you talk about the seed of a thought and you talk about success breeds confidence, I think so many times athletes and just people in general think that success is getting to the top of the mountain versus just doing the hiking. Like making your bed is a success. Having a good breakfast is a success. Doing the workout when you said you were going to do it to the way it was supposed to be done is a success. And I think when you have that day-to-day process, that's often that preparation and process is going to feed that confidence as well. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of process and routine as it feeds confidence? For sure. You know, you and I, we, we, we've talked about this before too, Brian. I mean, there's so many, so many things that we talked about, um, you know, things there, when you and I worked together as coach athlete, there were so many things that we worked on and then some things that, that I did, uh, really well. And one of the things that I learned through one of the mistakes I made is not enjoying the process early on. Um, let me, I'll tell a story from later in my career. I was, it was, I was in Germany and it was my first match against Vanderlei Silva. And if you've, if you've seen that match, Vanderlei and I went through a 15 minute war and I, I think I had to, I think I went to the hospital quickly or had to see the doctors afterwards. Nothing major. I didn't require any surgery, but, and then came back to the hotel that night and I had a dinner planned with my team, but it took me a while to get out of the arena that night. And by the time I got back to the hotel, the hotel was swarming with fans. There were they were in the parking lot. They were all over the place. It was our first. It was this was our first show in Germany, and so there were thousands and thousands of fans at the hotel. And I remember pulling up in the van and just being so tired, and my hands were hurting, and I was I had I had spent time in the locker room icing things, 
And I just, as I pulled up, I stood there and I was like, oh man, I can't, I, I, I just, I just want to sit down and eat with my team. And I remember my coach, Rob, my boxing coach, he looked at me and he said, champ, he said, think about this. How many more opportunities are you going to have like this, where you show up and there are just thousands of people waiting for you to get a photo and an autograph? He's like, you know, these people are your fans. And I said, you know what, you're right. And this kind of ties into uh, w- one of the things I learned from you about viewing obstacles as opportunities. And uh, and so we get out of the car and I start signing uh, autographs. Now, lo and behold, my, my coach, he disappears within about 30 seconds and he's at the table <laughs> of the dinner that I had ordered for everybody sitting there chowing down and, and enjoying things on the second floor of the hotel while I'm stuck in the parking lot signing autographs for the next two and a half hours. But... Um, but it was a reminder that, you know, n- nothing lasts forever. And I made the mistake and now taking that story and rewinding back to the towards the, the front end of my career, I, I made the mistake of not enjoying the process because I was so fixed on the goal on the end game at the time that when it came to uh, the competition, like, uh, you know, I was so fixed on on winning the title at, at one point in my career. I mean, there was a point in my career where I never even even thought the title was I, I, there was a point in my quote unquote career where I didn't even really consider pursuing MMA full time. But then when you, you, you suddenly these thoughts and, and reinforce the actions and the actions, uh, you know, the routines and all that. And now suddenly you get on a path of what you believe is inevitability and that title is going to be mine. And I was so fixed on the title on the end game that I forgot to actually enjoy the process. And the night that I won my title, my belt, I remember we, we fought in, uh, at Trump Plaza in, in Atlantic city. And I walked back to my hotel room and I was standing there with just a small group of my inner circle. And I set the belt down on the, the hotel bed and I looked at it and you know, you, you're going from an arena of 12, 13,000 screaming fans to this silent hotel room within the hour. And so and it was, it's, it's, even though I have my close friends with me, it's, it's a kind of a, a lonely feeling, so to speak. I can understand how, how like rock stars, for example, get so intertwined into things like drugs and stuff like that or depression. And I just remember standing there in my hotel room and I said to everybody there, I said, I don't feel like a champion. I don't know what I expected. I don't, you know, I, in my mind, I pictured those parades that you see when the soldiers were returning from World War II overseas. And, you know, the whole city of New York was just filled with people. I think I expected my life to be like that every day for the rest of my life, perhaps. Um, but when I got there, it was just, well, now you've won the title. And now it's time to wake up tomorrow and, and reinforce those thoughts that are going to reinforce those routines that are going to once again, get you to winning the next match. And so it was about that time that I was really harshly reminded that the enjoyment really is in the process. And so, you know, recently I was climbing Mount Fuji and as I was walking up the mountain and don't get me wrong, I had moments of asking myself why the heck I'm doing this thing, particularly because I hadn't trained for that mountain and I, and I, I didn't have the proper, some of the proper gear, like things like food and water that I needed because it was only a six hour hike. And I thought, well, I can do anything for six hours. But as I was walking up that mountain, there was times where I asked myself why I was doing it. But I had to remember that it was it was an epic process because the reality is, is that once I got to the top of the mountain, I was going to stand there and enjoy that view for, I don't know, two minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. But eventually I had to come back down that mountain. And it's that's just a short lived extrinsic stimulus that you get from that. And if you're not intrinsically motivated by something, by the enjoyment of the process, for example, then you're going to find that all those experiences in life, when you win a world title and you go back to your hotel room is going to feel very empty. You talk about the, 
the hike up Mount Fuji. And there was another hike recently that you were on in the Philippines where, you know, maybe unlike when you were in the hotel at the Trump Plaza after you won that UFC title and you put it down on the bed and you said, I don't feel like a champion. You're on this hike in the Philippines and you run into a fan that told you something that was meaningful to you. Take us back to that moment in that conversation. Yeah. So I was, I was recently, uh, had traveled down to Cebu in, in the Philippines and we went outside, we went outside of the downtown area several hours and there's this area called Kawasan Falls. It's a beautiful place. If you ever have a chance to, if you want to do a nice, not an extreme hike, just a nice little hike where there's some waterfalls and, and by waterfalls, I mean anything from say 10 feet to something that's more like 40 or 50 feet. It's, it's, this is, this is a great little hike and you can jump off of these waterfalls or there are ways to walk around them as well. But it's just beautiful. You, you, it's about a two to three hour hike, nothing too strenuous. And it's, it's really, really majestic back there. But the hike essentially culminates to this final waterfall. That's about, I guess about 50, 55 foot. And we're jumping off all these waterfalls and we get to the final waterfall and we jump. And as, as we sat, we had lunch when we were finished, we're leaving the trail. And I bump into this guy who happens to be from Cincinnati also. And he says to me, Hey, he says, uh, rich Franklin. And I said, yeah, yeah. He says, man, I'm a huge fan. And now when you're in the middle of essentially when you're in the middle of nowhere, as compared to Cincinnati, that is, and somebody recognizes you and it's been almost a decade since you've been on television live in the manner of competition, you know that you're talking to somebody that's a true fan. He says, Hey man, I'm you know huge fan and re- you really appreciate it. And started talking about some of my, I really appreciate your match against so-and-so and this and that. And he said, but Hey, I said, I really appreciate you representing Cincinnati really well. He said, and you were always a good role model for my children. Somebody that I always wanted my kids to tune into and listen to and watch. And, you know, I'm, I'm often asked like, what's, what do you, what accomplishment are you the proudest of in your career? And you know, like I said before, I don't, I don't get caught up on something that actually happened because I'm always working on what is, what is now. But when somebody says something like that to me, and I realize that that is the legacy that I left behind for a lot of people, that to me is, is far more important than any belt that could have ever been wrapped around my waist. Again, on the Rich, when you talk about legacy, one of the things that I wanted to accomplish kind of with this new format of the podcast was giving people an opportunity to ask questions of our guests. So some of the questions that came in, first one comes from Zane and Zane said, Rich, would you mind describing how you transitioned from top of the world fighter in the UFC to a high level executive at one championship? And how has the transition been spending most of your life now in different geographic areas? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to take all the credit for this because, Brian, I believe this wholeheartedly. I believe that God has put me on a path in this world and, and has just kind of watched over me my entire life because I don't have any way of actually explaining how a third string high school football athlete who doesn't have a background in any other sport ends up becoming a world champion in a combative sport. And I always said to myself when I was done competing, I want to I want to travel around the world a little bit and see some of the world. Now I I was fortunate and blessed enough to to compete in seven different countries, 
internationally. I think it's seven, but several countries. And 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 but you don't really get to see the world because you're there during competition week. You're so focused on the competition. You don't you don't get to enjoy much of the culture or the city that you're in or any of that kind of stuff. So when I was done competing, I said, you know, I want to travel a little bit and see some things. And lo and behold, now I'm doing this, this job where my job essentially is to travel and recruit talent. And I, I, when I recruit talent, I take these guys and we go do some fun stuff. Sometimes I might be jumping off of waterfalls. Sometimes I might be uh, eating some crazy food like live squid and that I did. And when I was in Seoul and, and so on, there's just, it's crazy. Some of the things that, that I do and, and I'm scratching my head sometimes asking myself, like, how did I even end up in this position? And so, you know, I, I believe that God had a hand in that for me, but it also, you know, I still have to do my part. It's not like I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that God said, well, you know what, you're going to win a world title. I got this. Don't you worry about a thing. You know, I still had to put in the work and do my half of things. And th- that's what I did to, to kind of position myself here. The transition initially, it's, it was it, a little, it's an adjustment. I'll say from the perspective of there was a point in my life where working out was my job. Now I actually have a job where working out is technically a hobby. I have to fit it into my day. That's that's the probably the toughest adjustment I've had to make because you know, I used to get up in the morning to do my road work because I was getting paid to do it. Now I got to get up in the morning and do my road work and I have to be motivated to do it on top of doing the things that I get paid to do. Um, which is a weird feeling because, you know, it's like, well, wait, this is, this is used to be my job. So, uh, that's, that's been a bit of, of a transition understanding that, but, and I think initially I probably had some, uh, a, a bit of a, you know, like a personal pushback on that. Like, no, 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 no. I, I, I still maintained training as if I was still competing professionally. Like I was still training several hours a day or at least maintaining as much of it as I could until I finally took ownership of the role that I'm in. And I viewed this, like I talked about earlier as I have this skill and I want to refine this skill. And so with this, like with, with the program that I have now, this one warrior series program, I've, you know, I said before, I've, I've pretty much been given full creative control on this thing. And so if I put out a good episode or if there's something about an episode that I don't like, a lot of that reflects on me personally. And it's not just me, but I have, I mean, I have an amazing team. I don't want to take the credit for all this. And I'm, I'm not sitting at the edit bays myself and I'm not the one behind the cameras shooting the footage and whatnot. But, you know, we sit down as a team and collaborate at the end and, and we're constantly looking at how we can make the process better and how we can produce better stuff. And it's the same kind of mentality that I has an athlete. And I think that what has been able to make me successful in the corporate world. And even though, you know, people still see me in front of the camera, if you, you know, if you're on this side of the planet, my, my show airs in about 15 different countries over here and people see me in front of the camera and will still see me, I guess, kind of as the quote unquote talent. But you know, from an executive standpoint and a business standpoint is when you have that mentality of, I have a skill or an art and I'm going to study this. I'm going to analyze it, break it down, and I'm going to do it better than the person, than my competition. I'm going to do whatever it takes to do it better than my competition. And by whatever it takes, I mean, within the rules of integrity, um, then, uh, and you apply that to, like I said, you, you do the, you do the smallest thing in life just as well as you do the greatest thing. You know, a bicycle has a, has a chain that makes the wheels go round, but that chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And so I've always, I've always taken this philosophy in life. So I'm going to treat my executive career the same way I treated my athletic career. And I, I don't view this as like, well, 
you know, man, I would really still like to be competing, but now I'm stuck doing this. It's like, no, this is the next great adventure that I'm on. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to leave, um, a legacy on this career, the same way that I left a legacy in my first career. Now, Rich, our next question comes in from Sarah and Sarah wanted, she said, you know, Rich, you were an athlete. I looked to who always had a quote unquote, relentless work ethic. Did you always feel like working out? And I think you can take that and tie it into right now. Like you just said it, you get up and used to get up in the morning and do the road work because you were getting paid for it. And because you knew there was another guy who was doing the same work that you were getting in a cage with now that there's no more, you getting into a cage, you're getting up to do it because you like to do it. Do you always feel like doing it when you get up? Always. Next question. Seriously? No. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was going to say, man, well, dude, you are you are a superhuman. No one always yeah. feels like working out. Yeah. How do you do it, though, when you don't feel like it? No, it's, you know, I'll tell you, and this is a, this is a difficult thing for me. All joking aside about the 5 a.m. club, Brian, you know, look, I, for somebody who's had a, I've had a 15-year career in mixed martial arts. And on top of it, I'm, the, I'm an adrenaline junkie. I, I do dumb things, really dumb things all the time. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the only person in my forties that I know that skis down a mountain acting like I'm 13, trying to do new tricks and stuff like that and constantly wiping out and hitting the ground. And when you're 13, if you break an arm, you can literally get up and, and wiggle the arm out and the break goes away. It doesn't happen in your forties anymore. And so these little bumps and bruises that I've accumulated during my entire life. And I've had, I don't know, several surgeries they, they start to add up. And when I wake up in the morning, you know, my back is a little tight and my feet, they're, they're not quite woken up yet. And I got to spend time stretching out. And so when I was in my twenties and my, my third, my early thirties, I could just jump up and, and hit the road, just hit the pavement and go. And now if I want to do, for example, empty stomach cardio in the morning, before I actually hit the road, I got a lot of kind of like stretching out, loosening up. And the next thing you know, it that 30 minute routine turns into an hour by the time I've loosened up and done everything I need to do to actually hit the road. So, um, so, you know, it's, it's quite difficult when you wake up and you're like, oh man, I'm just a little sore and this and that. And on top of that, a, most of the workout that I do now, whether I'm in the gym or if I'm doing road work, any kind of conditioning or bag work or things like that, other than when I'm grappling with people and whatnot, it's different. But a lot of the stuff that I do is on my own. And so to stay self-motivated is, is really quite difficult, but I always tell myself this, you know, I, this is the one thing, and you know, we, we we had I'd mentioned this to you the other day. Every time I had to get up in the morning and run when it was cold outside and there was snow on the ground, and I and I would get up with that attitude of like, oh gosh, man, I hate doing this. Like I, I don't like running in the cold, and I don't I don't like running in the cold. But I'll tell you what I hate more than running in the cold, and that's failure. Um, and so if I have to choose between failure or running in the cold, running in the cold is going to win every single day. And that's just a metaphor that I use for, for my life. Whenever I think I don't, I don't feel like doing something. It's like, well, you know what? Failure is an option. Quitting is an option. Why don't you just quit instead? That's a lot easier. And I'm like, mm, yeah, but I don't like quitting. I don't like, I don't like quitting more than I don't like the 5am club as much as I don't like the 5am club. So get, pushed into the necessity for having to get up at 5am. I would do it if I had to, because well, the opposition is just not, not an option. It's I'm, quitting is not an option. So, um, you know, I, I kind of mix that with the, what, what you talk about with the attitude of gratitude in that if I have to get up and run in the morning when it's cold outside, I tell myself the only thing worse than doing this is not having the ability to run. Um, you know, if, 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 
if I had messed up my you know joints to the point where I could no longer run anymore, then it would be sad. I would sit and think like, man, I would love to go for a jog. I'm, imagine me sitting here thinking, I would love to just go for a 5K. I would love to run a marathon. To be so deprived of running that you would love to run a marathon. I think that I think a lot of people can actually relate to that now. There are probably a lot of people in this world who, for example, like to sit around on their couch and, and watch Netflix. Now we're in the middle of this this pandemic and everybody's quarantined and everybody is getting to the point where they're just about Netflixed out. And people are sitting there thinking like, God, I would just I would just love to go outside. I don't care that it's I don't care that it's a hundred degrees outside. I'm gonna sweat my butt off. I'd rather be outside today. And and so it's 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 all about your perspective and, and how you look at things. So yeah, do I, do I, do I lose motivation at times? Absolutely. But the, the opposite quitting is just not an option. So it always wins. You know, you talked about quitting is not an option and failure is not an option. But when you're 13 years old, skiing down a hill and you break an arm, it's no big deal. You get back up and try the next trick. Well, Rich talking about broken arms leads us to our next question that comes in from chap and chap wanted to know, at UFC 115, June 2010, you're fighting another Hall of Famer in Chuck Liddell, and you break your arm in that first round with a leg kick and come back and knock whoa, out. Whoa, whoa. I didn't break my arm. Chuck broke my arm. Yeah, thank okay. you. So, so just, Chuck breaks just your arm. Kick, right? It's like getting hit with a baseball bat in the forearm. Take us back through. You get a broken arm, and you come back to knock out one of the greatest of all time. Well, it's interesting that that match, you, when – when he kicked my arm, I thought, man, it's so stupid. I just remember standing there and just I didn't I didn't block that kick properly. I didn't defend against it, and there's a proper way to do that. And I didn't shock absorb it and move with the kick. I just stuck my arm out there, and obviously, you know, the, the tibia is a much stronger, thicker bone than the the ulna, and it the, it came in and just crashed through and, and broke that ulna. And I remember as soon as it happened, you can rewatch the match, and I'm shaking. I, I, you'll see me like shake my fist, like something wasn't right. And, uh, and then, you know, I, I could feel the pain immediately, but not, it's not the, the pain of like, it's not a terrible pain because you have a lot of adrenaline going on, but you can feel pain like mm, that doesn't feel right. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm shaking out my hand, shaking out my hand. And then I, th- I throw a punch. And when I throw a punch at him with that hand, I, I, I can feel the bones in the hand go like click, click, like it can, or not the hand, but the, the arm, the bottom of the forearm there. And when I felt that click, click, it was a familiar feeling before because I had broken my hand several years prior to that on David Loazzo's head. I, I broke uh, my, my um, second metacarpal in my left hand. And every time I threw a punch, I could feel that bone going click, 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 click. So I knew right away that, that, that the arm was broken. And my mindset, it's interesting how your mind will suddenly change. And, you know, Brian, I I talked to you about this the other day about how a mindset can go from a growth mindset to a fixed mindset. And my mindset in this match immediately, just like that, went from growth to fixed because I suddenly thought instead of how do I win this match or me winning this match or what I need to do, I was thinking, how do I survive this round so that I can go to my corner and let my corner know that my arm is broken so that they can tell me how to win the match as if they were going to have this magic recipe. For, okay, you have a broken arm. Here's the broken arm game plan. We didn't share it with you during camp, but this is what we're going to do now. And um, and so I went to this fixed mindset. There was a point in time actually where, where, where Chuck took me down in the match and I was against the cage. And I there's this, this move that I do when I'm on the bottom of the guard and I, and I stand up and I stand up really effectively. It's a bread and butter move that I do. And I typically only do it to one side and I post it out with my arm, my broken arm. And when I post it out to try to stand up, my arm just folded on me. So I had to go to the other side to do this because I couldn't post on my left arm. 
And, uh, and when I, I post on my right arm, actually getting up, I kind of, I left myself exposed. And fortunately I didn't end up in a choke or getting kneed in the face or anything like that. And it really was sloppy technique when I look at it and assess it, but I got back to my feet and you quickly realize like, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if this arm is broken or not. You're in, you're in a dog fight here. And this is just a, a great metaphor for life. Like when, you know, when something happens unexpectedly to you and, uh, and you have to deal with a whole different set of problems that you thought you were going to have to deal with the, the world keeps spinning and, the, and things keep coming at you and you better learn how to, pun intended here, roll with the punches and, and keep moving forward. Cause if not, if you don't have that grit, you're going to fold. And, uh, and so that's, that's what happened in this match. And, and, you know, you, even though my arm was broken, I keep throwing punches with it. Uh, and eventually the, you know, the, the training that we did paid off actually, because I was working with my boxing coach on that match and we had worked a specific combination where Chuck tends to over pursue once he has, once he thinks he has, or he has somebody hurt and he had landed like, landed a combination or landed a punch and thought that he rocked me and I was stepping backwards to evade some punches, but I was fine. And then he started to over pursue. And then I landed that overhand, right. And it went all back to the routines that we, that we did, um, where we, we land, we worked this dumping overhand, right over and over. We worked it so many times that I was actually training. And I remember my coach holding pads one day and he's like, Oh, and, and he like throws the pad up for me to hit this overhand right again. And I looked at him I'm like, Rob, man, I'm, I'm sick of throwing this punch. And he, he literally smacked me in the face with the pad and said, throw the punch. And that was the punch that ended up winning the match for me. Mm. So, uh, you know, it all, it, it all goes back to that and just not, you know, not letting yourself get sidetracked. And even in those moments where you, where your confidence is broken, um, you need to, you know, you need to go back to your initial thoughts and this comes back to the, you know, green light, yellow light, red light thoughts that, that we've done with, that we've been into before and, and, and just continuing to move forward. And you kind of had this grave look on your face. What was going through your mind at the time? Uh, the, I, I was just happy the fight was over because I knew my arm was broken in the fight. Uh, and I, I definitely wasn't going to quit. Come, I mean, I've broken bones before and continue fighting, but <clears throat> there was part of me that was wondering how I was going to be able to, like, what kind of strategy I was going to use to win a fight with a broken left arm in, in the second and third round. You know, I want to make sure we definitely get to talking about awareness and the signal lights, but before we go to there, you talked about Rob, your boxing coach, and how you were hoping to get back to the corner so they could give you the broken arm game plan, but how he also hit you in the face with the pad to say, hey, man, we're working on this overhead right. And he's also talked you into making sure you go and sign all those autographs in Germany while he was eating your filet mignon on the second floor. But yeah. when you look at your coaches that you've had in MMA and you've worked with some great ones, what's kind of the mental attitude? Ronald asked a question. What's the mental attitude that you value the most in your MMA coaches? Oh, man. I don't know because, I mean, look, you know, this is not a sport where you're playing – you're playing uh, football and you have a head coach. You know, there's, I, I mean, I had, when I was in Cincinnati, I had Mike, my conditioning coach, uh, George Gergel, my jiu-jitsu coach, Rob Radford is my boxing coach, Neil Rowe, my kickboxing coach. Uh, later on, I started working with Ryan Root as a wrestling coach. And, um, and then, of course, you and I worked together in mental performance. And then when I was up in Seattle, I had Joel Jameson working my strength conditioning up there and Matt Hume. And all these, all these people, they have different like they all bring different aspects to the game 
you know, for example, I look at the two strength and conditioning coaches I work with. Joel is very scientific um, with the way that he approaches things. And, and, you know, at the time he and I were working together and he was using his eight weeks out program. And it's, it's, you know, we were using recovery systems and things were computerized and data was tracked and all that kind of stuff. Whereas with Mike, Mike is one of those just hardcore grit and training kind of guys. And even though he's not using a computer, he's been in the game so long with when it comes to conditioning and lifting and things like that, that he probably knows how to analyze things. And he knew me as an athlete so well that he didn't need data. He knew right away if I'd been overtraining, if he needed to back off, if we needed to take a day off or whatever. And I think that the thing that I probably value the most about the, the, I guess the, the mental aspect, the most collectively as my coaches is that my coaches were all thinkers like I was, uh, in their, particularly in their respective arts, but they were all always trying to reassess and, um, you know, build their skill set, so to speak, and make themselves better. Uh, not, you know, some of my coaches like Neil, my kickboxing coach was also a good training partner of mine. And he was always looking like, not only how do, how do I build my skill set as a training partner, but how do I build my skill set as a, as a coach? And those two things sometimes would intertwine so that it would, it would benefit me. And so this thinking strategy that I had as a, as a very cerebral athlete tended to be the same way that all my coaches were with, about their strategies. And, and this is independently of each other. They didn't have this like sit down powwow with each other and say, okay, here's the thinking strategy we need to implement. But when I was with my boxing coach, the strategy was a very thinking strategy. When I worked with Matt in Seattle, the strategy was a very thinking man strategy. And we would break people, break things down and look at where we needed to build things. And it was that way across the board. And I think that that's what I really appreciate and value the most about all my coaches. You know, if we can kind of transition from this concept of talking about your career and kind of try to laser in for, I think something that our audience is really wanting to know from Rich Franklin's perspective is, is kind of talking about the mental game. So can you kind of take us all the way back to how did we meet and what's kind of your first remembrance of like an exposure to mental performance and some of our training and kind of how this whole thing got started of you working with a mental performance coach? Yeah. Um, well, let me, let me just say it's weird how the brain works because you know, when Brian, when I was training in karate, I was the, I was the top dog at the dojo. And, um, and so, you know, I guess like, you know, a, a big fish in a small pond, so to speak. And this really breeds this sense of confidence. And I, when I look at myself at that point in time, the, the present day me looking back at the young 19 year old me, I'm thinking, man, what a false sense of confidence you had, because I could not really, I did not have the combative skills that I needed at the time. You know, um, I, we were, we were a very hard nosed karate school. And in terms of those kinds of schools, I would, I would put our people up against any other school in the world. But as it applies to just overall combat, I look back and I think like, Oh Lord, I was so confident. Like I was just did not even question my ability. And then time goes on. Um, this confidence continues, continues, continues. And I think where I probably had the first just little kink in the armor of my confidence was I don't know, my second or third amateur bout where I was competing against this guy and I, and I, I kicked this guy in the jaw and broke his jaw in, in several different places. And when I, when I looked at him, I thought, wow, that, 
that I could be on the receiving end of that. Had I made a mistake in this match, like this is really what could happen. And I, I started understanding the, I don't, I don't want to say like, it's not the severity of the injuries, but what really, like what's really at stake. And I'm not talking about health. I'm just talking about winning and losing and what can possibly happen, success and failure. And, but that was on the, that was on the, the, you know, the winning end of something like that. And that's where I really started thinking about things still, still uber confident. But as you start realizing like, Oh, eyeballs are on me. Like the, the story that I told earlier with um, the name of the show was full contact fighter because that was the clothing label that Joel gold owned at the time. When I start, when I start thinking about that show and what I heard and suddenly the pressure that I felt because uh, all these eyeballs were on me. And the interesting thing about, confidence is that, you know, when people are confidently, man, you should hear me sing in the shower. I am amazing. I, I, I'm probably a, uh, I, I probably deserve a Grammy. I'm not kidding, man. It's, it's something to hear. Um, but, uh, but then suddenly if I'm, um, singing karaoke, for example, in front of a large crowd, you're going to get a much different performance because it's just uh, for some reason between the shower and the karaoke stage, that Grammy ability goes somewhere. And this confidence, you suddenly lack this confidence because eyeballs are on you and people are going to judge you and whatnot. And this is your perception. And you learn at the end of the day that really the worst critic in the world is particularly when you're competing, I always say that my, my, my worst critic is myself. It's the man in the mirror at the end of the day, because at the end of the day, if I'm not happy with my performance or I didn't do well or whatever, I'm really hard on myself way harder than the fans are ever. And, and, and so I don't understand how this perception of judgment or fear of judgment or, you know, whatever these outside factors suddenly can affect your confidence. But it starts to it starts to, to to mess with you, and there's all this, uh, you know, outside messaging coming in, you know, whatever it is, what journalists are writing or what fans are saying on social media or message boards or any of that kind of stuff, and you're getting all this input, and so you have to be able to shut all those kind of things off. You and I started working together. It was between my between my my first loss to Anderson and my second loss to Anderson. And I really had my confidence shaken after the, the Anderson match, the first one, obviously, because it was just, you know, the, the, the whole approach to that match and everything leading into it is a whole different conversation. But after losing a match like that, it's going to, it's going to mess with your confidence. I can remember that my next match was Jason McDonald, and it was in Columbus, Ohio. So I was, I was competing in my home state at the time. And I had a good performance, but I can just remember being in the cage, and I can remember – when I was slipping punches, I was moving extra and just had this fidgety movement and I wasn't being efficient the way that I normally would. And it probably is undetectable to most people watching the match, but I knew it. I knew the feeling that I felt mentally and I knew the performance that I had physically. And this was the man in the mirror at the end of the night saying like, man, Rich, you know, what's going on? Why are you questioning yourself? And, you know, after you come off of a, a match like Anderson and I had my nose smashed, you, you're a bit, you're a bit reluctant to start putting your face in, in the, in front of somebody's punches. And so I won that match and then you and I started working together and I realized that I had some, some stuff, some, I guess I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know this phrase, but I had some massive yellow and some, probably a lot of red light thoughts at the time. And, uh, and so 
when I talked to you, when we started working together, you know, the thing that we talked about, that was one of the first concepts we talked about was the green light, yellow light, red light thoughts. And it was interesting. And something we talked about the other day is how at the time I just wanted you to make that stuff go away. I was essentially, I was just like, Brian, make me confident again and get rid of these, the, all this, all this, uh, doubt, the self doubt that I have, I, I got to get rid of this. So just, you know, tell me what I need to do. I'll read a book. I'll say my mantra. I'll, you know, whatever I can hum, whatever I need to do. Just, just tell me. And, uh, I'll, I'll burn some incense. I don't know. And, yeah. and it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. And so, you know, what you had taught me at the time was that, Hey, here are these signals that you got going on. And prior to a match like that, I wasn't always green, but I was, let's say 90, 95% green with some yellows and the occasional red. And then after that, I'm starting to notice these red light thoughts. And so you and I working together, suddenly it's like, instead of making these things go away, we learn how to identify them. And we identify when we're in the yellow zone rather than in the red zone. So before we get to the red zone, not saying that it still never happened, but you identify it much earlier and and you turn your thought process around. So let instead of letting yourself drift down this path of self-doubt to the point where you're so deep in a hole that you can't hardly dig yourself back out of it, as you recognize yourself as you're starting to step in the hole and saying, uh, 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 let me let me step around this hole. Let me change direction here. Let me get myself back on track. Because once again, going back to what I said before, is those thoughts, those thoughts will, you know, suddenly they they creep into your routines and your actions and they'll start reinforcing all your, your, your technique and all that kind of stuff. And so now you're starting to execute things with self-doubt. And so it, you know, if you don't recognize that immediately, it can, it can really uh, infect your entire game. And so that's, that's one of the things that we had. And I think that for us, you and I particularly working together on the Travis Luter match, when people ask me what one of my favorite matches is in my career, I always say the Travis Luter match because it was a match where I, it was my worst winning performance. Um, and I, there was a, a moment in time in that match where I mentally broke. And I talked about I talked about that particular match in depth in my TED talk. But when we did we prepped for this thing and we we nailed the prep down. Travis did exactly what we thought he was going to do, but I just failed in execution the whole way through. I failed in every step of execution to the point where I got mounted. And even when we were in camp, my coach has said, if he mounts you, Matt told me, if he mounts you, you are um the, the 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 fight's over like don't get mounted we didn't even work mount escapes for that because it was we did everything we needed to do to prevent getting mounted so getting mounted wasn't even an option so when i ended up on the bottom side of the mount in that match i had mentally broke for a moment um and then i told myself like well wait a minute what are you what are you doing and i and j- much is the same when i was in the the chuck Liddell match uh i had to get myself back on track and so I turned myself back around in that match and then I was able to escape the, the arm bar from the bottom side and I come back and won. But it was my worst winning performance. But I think had you and I not done the work together that we had done, when I hit those red light thoughts when I was laying on my back in the middle of that, that, that cage, uh, I probably would not have been able to escape the red light thoughts and I wouldn't have won that match. You know, I think something else, uh, that kind of concept that people can grab what you're saying here is really learning how to talk to yourself and not listen. Cause I think when you listen and we're all going to have that little voice of self-doubt, we're all going to have that little voice of, do I really want to go through this? Do I want to push anymore? But you learn how to talk yourself through that. Is that something that you feel like you've gotten better at with experience and age? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I think, 
you know, the thing, Brian, as you asked me this question, I start thinking about how these concepts that we, you and I have worked on apply to my personal life. Because I think initially I was really good at applying these things to my professional life. Um, one in particular was, and I did this well before you and I worked together, but I got even better at it when we worked together. And the Travis Luter example is a perfect example of that, is viewing obstacles as opportunities. You know, in this world, there are certain people that just, you know, I, I always say this, like, I think I was just born this way, that if my mom, when I was a two-year-old kid, said to me, no cookies, and she took the cookie jar and put it on top of the refrigerator, I would have been the kind of kid that walked into the kitchen and saw that cookie jar on the top of the refrigerator and been like, huh, how do I get cookies out of that thing? And I would have figured out a way to climb myself all the way up on top of that refrigerator to get those cookies. There are other people in this world who, as a kid, they would look and say, oh, the cookies, the cookie jars on top of the fridge. So I just, I guess I can't have any cookies now. And they, they view obstacles as obstacles. Uh, and I think that we're maybe I don't know, born that way with a certain preset amount of that. And you can, you can train this and hone in on it. But, uh, you know, I've always been the kind of person that's viewed obstacles as opportunities and particularly when it comes to competition. And I think that it's not something that I, that I necessarily applied to my personal life as well as I did my competitive life, because in my competitive life, I, I have this grit. I will walk through brick walls in order to accomplish my goal or win or succeed or whatever I need to do. But in your personal life with little things, you'll get frustrated by these obstacles rather than saying, okay, this is an opportunity for me to do whatever. You know, when, when I'm mounted against one of the best grapplers in the world, this is an opportunity for me to showcase or work a different kind of uh, armbar escape. And, you know, I didn't have that kind of mentality in my personal life. And so there, there was this ability for me to, to, to think about this and probably something I'm still working on, to be real honest, as, as a human being, but applying this, this philosophy of obstacles or opportunities, and you need to view it that way in your personal life as well, so that you can always maintain, for example, an attitude of gratitude. So uh, I don't, did I actually fully answer the question that you asked? Yeah, I think so. I think to, you know, to kind of come back to it, it would be, you know, a question that Mark submitted where he said, you know, Rich, when was the first time that you realized that the mental performance training that you're doing with Brian was actually working? And then was there one technique, like you've talked about signal lights, you've talked about self-talk, you know, was there one sort of exercise that you would do as part of a training program? And I think what you'll probably talk about is mental imagery and visualization or listening to the audios when you're doing road work. But if you can kind of talk about one, when was there, was there a point where you said like, wow, this mental performance training is actually working. And then two, what were some of those things that you did in the training process? Yeah, I'm sure that I'll go back to this, Brian. I think that that moment on my back in the in the looter match that I was talking about before is the moment where I really realized it was working. Now, I'll say this. The caveat is that I probably realized the mental performance training was working well before that during my actual process of getting ready for the match. But it, that memory is so burnt into my head that that's where I really realized like, oh, this is working. And not only is it working during the process, but it's actually working in, a, in real life application, like during the match itself. So um, that's that's where that uh, that really sticks in my head. And you're right. If I had to choose one aspect of the the mental performance training that you and I did, other than identifying the uh, green light, yellow light, red light thoughts, like being aware of that and learning how to turn that around. And a lot of that comes with understanding your circle of control. 
that that was a big one for me because you going back to the original reason why I came to you is I just wanted to make those red light thoughts go away completely. And a lot of that was, you know, understanding what what is actually in your circle of control. But as far as I guess, um, you know, uh, skills or whatever or drills, then I would have to say it would be the imagery and visualization. And that was something that I carried through and I still I still use to this day. Anytime I'm doing something particularly that I think I'm, I may be nervous about doing or where I feel like failure is, a, a, I don't know, a possible outcome or something like that is I, I like to visualize things because when I was getting ready for a match, we took it so far as to when I was when when I was preparing for the competition on Saturdays, those were our our kind of full go sparring days. So I would come into the gym, I would walk into the locker room, I would kind of get stretched out by my coaches, prep, all that stuff. Just everything would be set up exactly like the day of the match. And we would walk out, we would play my music, and we would do everything as if it was a match. And there were, you know, there were sessions like that where we were I guess that's kind of a form of visualization because you're mimicking the day of. But we also did the visualization at the end of the at the end of the training sessions where I would lay there and go through the match, everything from arriving in the locker room all the way through to walking out to getting introduced to the hand raised and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, you were in my locker room and you had recorded all those locker room sounds and the walkout and me getting introduced and getting into the cage. And so. I would go through these these imagery and visualization exercises where I would picture myself not just succeeding in the match, but sometimes failing in the match as well and having to overcome. And this is something that I probably learned from the looter fight is like, hey, even if you visualize everything in in a in, in a scenario, not, not everything you visualize is going to play out exactly the way you visualize it. You're still going to be you're still going to have little failures here and there, and you can't let those those little failures suddenly put you in a red light thought system where you're where you're afraid to pull the trigger now. So um, I would even visualize myself failing at techniques and getting taken down when I was defending it, but being able to get back to my feet and being able to fix whatever went wrong if something went wrong, so that when I was actually in the match, I wasn't just prepared to execute a winning strategy, but I was prepared to be able to recourse myself and execute other technique if things didn't go exactly the way I had, I guess, technically, quote unquote, visualized it unfolding. And so that was probably the most useful technique that you and I had, because there were times where you and I would do phone calls and I was sitting in my office and I would shut down the lights. And I can remember, distinctly remember sitting in my, my office chair at my desk there, uh, talking to you on the phone. I can remember doing these things. Um, the week of training where you would, I would lay down on the mats and you would run me through this stuff with um, quiet sounds and all that kind of stuff. I can remember doing it with my coaches and you helping my coaches so that they knew how to talk to me after the matches. And I can remember being in the school, laying on the mats when I was prepping and kicking the lights out in the school so that we could lay there and do the visualization process. Attention athletes, coaches, and parents of athletes. Mental performance is the key to unlocking unshakable confidence, forging unbreakable mental toughness, and gaining an almost unfair edge over the competition. So why are so many athletes leaving their mental performance training up to chance? And why are so many coaches flat out ignoring it? 
Look, if you're an athlete and you know you can perform at a higher level than you currently are, but you're not sure what's missing, or if you're a coach or parent who's tired of seeing your athletes fall short of their potential because they lack confidence or mental toughness, and you're looking for a step-by-step program that they can use to master the mental game, you're in exactly the right place. I'm Brian Kane, world-renowned mental performance coach, and I've had the privilege to work with Olympic athletes, MMA world champions, Major League Baseball Cy Young Award winners, and Heisman Trophy winners on closing the gap from where they were to where they wanted to be in mental performance. And now, with my 30 Days to Mental Performance Mastery for Athletes program, you can get the same training that's helped these world champions close the gap from where they were to where they wanted to be and needed to be to win. Head over to briancane.com and click on Athletes to get started today. Being at a time, this is back in, you know, the 2000s when you were doing this. And was this something that when you first got introduced to it, you were like, man, this is kind of like, you know, Disneyland or what is this mental performance? Because, man, we we didn't start working together until probably 2006, 2007. Yeah. Or was it something where at that time you were still even open to it? Because I think now in 2020, People are open to mental performance training, but I think they're open to it because of guys like you talking about the impact that it had on your career while you were doing it. For sure. At the time, I'm again, I could put myself back into that mindset. Clearly, I was open to, to doing this because you and I had worked together, but it seemed so weird to me because look, I, for whatever reason in this society, it's one thing to admit like, hey, I'm I need to improve my boxing skill, so I'm going to hire this boxing coach. But hey, I need to improve my confidence or my mental strategy, so I'm going to hire this mental performance coach. Particularly for me, because I mean, think about this: I'm a very cerebral fighter, and my background is in education. I'm a teacher. I'm a math teacher at that. And so everything has a a logical process. I use deductive reasoning skills and I've used all these kind of skills that I'm just naturally good at and have been educated in to help me succeed both as an athlete and as an executive. I mean, this is part of like the mental pillar is part of one of the things that I'm, that I'm good at. And so to swallow that, that a piece of that humble pie and say, yeah, you know, I think I need a little help here, particularly when you're so many years into a career where that wasn't something that you needed is a tough thing to do. But, you know, make no mistake about it. The reason why I think I was open to it is because I was always the kind of athlete that when I was doing karate initially, like when I first started training and I was doing karate, I was, like I said, I was the top dog at my dojo. And then my instructor's son came home and I can remember sparring him and being in a cat stance, uh, like with my traditional, uh, you know, knife hand, like open hand technique and getting kicked in the thigh by uh, my buddy, Sean, and, and, you know, landing a traditional, just uh you know, round kick, thigh kick to my leg. And man, when he hit me with that first kick, I'd never been hit like that before. I'm like, what the heck? And uh, immediately I was, I, instead of being proud and saying like, well, wait a minute, I'm the top dog at this school. Nobody gets away with that. I was, I, I immediately looked at him. I said, teach me. And so you know, I've always had this ability to to kind of, like I said, eat a little bit of that humble pie and take a step back and and, and rewire yourself. But when it comes to confidence and things like that, it's, it's pretty difficult to do, especially at that time in, in 
at that time in history, hate to use that word, makes me sound old, but at that point in time where this was not uh, something that, that, that people talked about, top level athletes talked about. And so even though you, I walked out for every match or I was going into the arenas every match scared to death, I didn't. I didn't know that other athletes felt that way, not just not just fighters, but also every athlete, not just athletes. I mean, people that are giving public speeches. And I, I learned that again when I when I did my TED talk, like, Lord of mercy, I feel worse here than I did when I was actually competing for a title or something like that. And so you just what you learn is that anybody in this world who is putting their reputation on anybody, any, anybody in this world, it doesn't matter what your discipline is. It doesn't matter if you're an executive and you're trying to seal some commercial deals, if you're a CEO of a company, if you're a musician, if you're some sort of performing arts, a ballerina, an athlete, I don't care. When you put yourself on the line and you're going to extend yourself out into a public forum where people can scrutinize and judge you and you're willing to say, this is my art, this is my skill, this is what I'm good at and I'm going to do it better than everybody else and I'm here to prove it. And when you do that, when you're the person that does that, you're going to feel you're going to feel some insecurities creep in here and there. And if you don't know how to deal with that stuff, the mental game can be the thing that, that, that crushes you. And in, in my industry, we call those people gym warriors. These are guys that when nothing's on the line and they're in the gym, they're killers. And I think, man, I would not want to run into this person in the cage, except for once they step into the arena for competition, they mentally fold. Yeah. And I think you see that all the time where, you know, you're not going to rise to the occasion. You're going to sink to your training. And I think the higher you go in levels of competition, the more and more mental performance training becomes important. It becomes important because everyone has the physical training. You know, when you're, when you're looking at your last, you know, 10 fights, I mean, you're fighting guys who are number one through four in the world. And every single one of those, you know, call them the last 15 fights of your career, essentially every fight in the UFC from Ken Shamrock to Kun Lee, every guy that you fought was in the top five at the time in the weight class, you know? So when you're fighting at that level, what difference does mental performance training make if you have it and the opponent doesn't? Oh, it's, I mean, it can be a huge difference. Look, I, I used uh, an illustration in my TED talk talking about the, it was 2012, I believe it's been a while since I haven't brushed up on this story, but it's the 2012 men's speed skating event, 500 meter men's speed skating event. I can't remember the name of the three competitors, but all three competitors were from the same country. I believe um, Norway, I think um, all three competitors were from the same country, trained at the same camp. And two of them were twin brothers, or at least they were brothers. I think they were twins, but when you look at the 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 gold, silver, and bronze medalists, all three of these these guys, these were the gold, silver, and bronze medalists. And the difference between first place and second place was one one hundredth of a second. That's it. That's that's a difference between when you're at a top level. It's a difference between winning and losing. So when you talk about doing whatever it takes, you can train. Everybody trains. Everybody trains hard, and and most people they train smart too. Some people train smarter than other people, and that kind of veers into the mental mental side, the mental performance side of things. But it's like I always I always like listening to athletes. I particularly like listening to athletes when they lose. What are you going to do? Or when they when they interview a coach walking into the game at halftime when he's behind by twenty points, you know, because this is a good indicator as to how the brain of that coach works, and. You will overwhelmingly hear athletes when they lose say, well, I'm just going to have to get back to the gym and train harder. And I'm like, really? So you didn't train hard enough for this match? Why did you sandbag? If You know that if you sandbag, it's going to produce the result you don't want. Oh, you didn't sandbag. So then how are you going to go back and train harder?
because you can't. And so, cause everybody goes into camp and they're going to be given a hundred percent basically every day. And if they're not, that's why they lost. And if they did, then that's not why they lost, but they're going to say, well, I just need to go back and train harder. And so the reality is, is that you oftentimes need to take a step back and look at that, that mental performance and kind of realign things and train smarter, so to speak. Um, so, my question is if, if you can, if you can train harder, why are you not? Or if you're going to step up on fight night, why don't you step up right now? Yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm saying. That's why, that's why the, you know, the point I was making is like, oh, you're going to go back and train harder Then why weren't you given a hundred percent in this camp? Oh, you did give a hundred percent. Well then how are you going to go back and train harder? That's like your, your reasoning doesn't, doesn't make sense there. So unless you knew that you just had a bad camp and didn't train the way that you should have, then that's what you would say. But yeah, you know, seeing, seeing people in, in their defeat is, uh, is, is a good indicator as to how, how they're going to reconstruct and rebuild. And now introducing the champion in the red corner. This man is a freestyle fighter who holds a professional record of 22 wins with one loss. Standing six feet, one inch tall, weighing in at 185 pounds, fighting out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Ladies and gentlemen, the defending One of the things I like to do on the podcast is put our guests in the hot seat and I'm going to give you a phrase and you got to give me the first thing that comes to your mind. It's rapid fire and I'm going to keep throwing them at you. So are you ready to get inside of the hot seat, Rich Franklin? Yeah. The next 200 feet. Oh, those are the, that's the headlights, man. That's uh focus on what's in front of you rather than what's uh, down the road. But that's kind of a cheating one, Brian, because this is a concept that you and I worked on about the you know, understanding what you got to do now, right. That's right in front of you, rather than focusing on the end process, driving, driving down the, the road when it's dark and your headlights only illuminate the next 200 feet. But if you're trying to look out into, you're not going to be able to see what's out into the woods or what's beyond that 200 feet or the deer running across the road. You got to focus on what you can see. FedEx logo. Oh, we, we've been, we've done this one too, is the arrow, man. Most people don't see the arrow in the FedEx logo. And I didn't until you and I worked together. And it's about some of those logos I did, like the Baskin Robbins. A lot of people don't see the 31 and the Baskin Robbins. And we, we've been through some of those things, but it's, it's about seeing things that you, in a way you've never seen them before. Fear as fuel. Oh yeah. Fears, fear is fuel. Fear is fuel is one of those things that you, this uh, brings me, the first thing I think of is George St. Pierre talking about the butterflies flying in formation. I heard him say that. And, uh, I think that was actually at the, the Montreal post-fight press conference when he said, you know, I had the, the butterflies and I just got to learn, I learned how to make my butterflies fly in formation. And, um, you know, the whole point is that you're never going to make the fear go away. I can remember when I was competing in Japan and Jeremy Horn, who was an athlete that had over a hundred matches at the time. I, I asked him, I said, when does this fear go away? And he says, well, he said, I don't know, but when it does, I'll let you know. And I thought, Oh Lord. And I really thought that I would get to a point where I just wasn't nervous about competing anymore. And so, you know, hearing that and then hearing something like George, what George said and all that kind of stuff, you realize that you just have to, uh, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Comfortable with being uncomfortable. What a, what a great concept for people to buy into. Talk about being uncomfortable. Talk about running to the roar. Yeah. You know, this, this truly is one of those things that I think that this probably would be a good mantra for my life. I'm comfortable being uncomfortable because 
Um, I don't understand, you know, when you talk about fear as fuel, there's a difference for me between like um, really like fear, fear, anxiety, and I don't know, reservations or something like that. Because I see people that are, are fear, like afraid of heights to the point where they wouldn't be able to say jump off of a high dive at a pool. Like literally they could or they couldn't climb up a ladder to get on their roof um, or they can't even walk across a glass bridge or something like that, or, or walk up to like standing on my terrace and walk up to the, the edge of the, the, and hold onto the railing and look over. And I don't understand this, this concept of fear because it's, it's one of those things where I, I, in my mind, instead of being afraid, I do a calculated risk. I say, okay, well, I know that this thing is constructed properly, so I can walk up to this railing and hold onto it and I'm not going to fall off. I don't have to worry about falling to my impending doom. And so instead of being afraid all the time, I, I, you know, I, I use these things as a, as, as a calculated risk so that I don't let things shut me down from, um, from competing, but it's going to create these feelings of uncomfortability. And so I just get comfortable being uncomfortable. I always use this, this example. If you've ever been driving down the road before and maybe a, an animal runs out in front of your car or a kid or something and, and you know, like I've, I've had a deer dart out in front of me on the road before and I almost hit a deer and you swerve really quick and you get that tingling sensation in your body because it's this overload of adrenaline just immediately. And your your body has this ability to almost like slow time down. Like you can see the deer, look in your rearview mirror, notice that there's this car coming the other way. So you can't veer into the other lane and your, your, your mind is able to process all this stuff just in milliseconds, but somehow you miss this deer and you get around it. And then that feeling immediately goes away again. And that's one of those feelings for me and something that, that I learned from just competing as an athlete, that that's, that is being, that's the feeling of being alive. You don't feel that way all the time. You're typically sitting at your desk, pecking away on keys, or you're running, you know, a, a 5K and w- whatever it is that you're doing, going about your daily stuff. But you don't have this feeling of like that that feeling of being alive. And so for me, I thrive off of that. I don't want to feel this way every single moment of my life, but I thrive off of these moments of standing at the top of a waterfall and going like, "Wow, this is." This is a little taller than I thought it was, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and make this jump anyway and, and, and doing that jump. And so I run to those kinds of things. And I think that people that accomplish great things in life are the kind of people that run, that, that are willing to do that, to go towards that stuff, running towards the roar rather than running away from it. That's running towards the roar. We got just a couple more on the hot seat to wrap us up here, Rich. Talk about welcome to the jungle. Welcome to the jungle is the, uh, the walkout song that I used for my second match against Anderson Silva in Cincinnati. I changed my music up because it's a, it's a a Cincinnati song. They use it for the, the Bengals when they walk out. So, you know, if you look at that match, I did a whole home hometown theme. I had the black and orange shorts. I veered from the brown and pink. I had a gray and uh, red or gray and scarlet t-shirt. That was my uh, callback to the Cincinnati Reds. They were the two uh, home team athletic teams. And then I walked out to welcome to the jungle, which has a kind of a hometown feel to it. So anybody that was from Cincinnati knew what I was getting at with all that stuff. Speaking of getting after it, hometown feel February 21, 2006, Rich Franklin day in Cincinnati, Ohio. Man, Brian, I can barely remember my birthday anymore. I'm glad you told me what day that was. Otherwise, I would have been like, what's February 21? No, I'm joking. But uh, yeah, that it's interesting how um, things in your life happen to you that you never really like, – they made a day out of uh, me in Cincinnati. And I, I'm really actually struggling to put some words together here because I don't – <laughs> 
I figured you would be on that one. So let me, let me give you one that's a little bit easier. The Franklin equation. Yeah. Well, you know, I, we, we used to, we used to have a column on my website back in the day and, and I loved, uh, writing some of these columns and, and go and ghost writing some of these columns. I had somebody else that was helping me out with them too. I don't want to take full, uh, ownership of all those things, but it was really nice. Like putting, putting those thoughts together. And I tell you what, the process of working with, uh, it was a friend of mine, Tom, um, working on these Franklin equations together is something that really gave me, um, I guess an interest in writing, uh, and then stuff like that and, and just expressing your thoughts. So, uh, and I would say that that was probably the precursor really, truly for me eventually doing my Ted talk as well. And I think Fritch to kind of uh, R- R- Fritch, as I was saying, Franklin rich, I think what you ought to do rich is take the Franklin equation and turn it into a book, man. Cause it was really good. I remember reading that and sharing it with high school athletes when I was a high school athletic director, when we were working together, I think it was that good. Have you ever thought about putting it into a book? I haven't. I, I, I think about books sometimes and I, Brian, I know that you've written so many books and man, it just seems like, it seems like so, so much work to, to do a book. And so, you, you know, you said something, uh, to me one time about the, 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 the power of influence and all that kind of stuff is one of these things that I've realized. I've always known this about myself. I've always, I've always known that I've had a platform, which is why when we told the story about the fan that I ran into at Kawasam Falls outside of Cebu and the legacy that I left with him and, and all that kind of stuff, I've, I've understood the power of the, in, that, that I have this influence, particularly with the words you speak. And it doesn't have to be an epic book that you necessarily write, but it can just be a simple statement that you, that you make to somebody on a daily basis, not realizing the impact you had on that person's life, or maybe, maybe not even that person's life. Maybe somebody else was sitting there and heard the thing you were saying to some, uh, another individual and you impacted their life. You just, you don't know. And so, um, when it comes to to writing a book and stuff like that, I sit and think about this all the time, and almost in my mind, I feel obligated at times that that I have this ability to positively positively inf- impact and influence the world, and it's something that I should be doing. So maybe I'll have to look at the Franklin equations and, and look at turning that into a book. You know, I know how much impact it had on me. I know how much impact it had on the students that I used to share it with. And I think, you know, being able to go back and reflect on what you wrote and now turning that into a book would be an easier process than winning an MMA world championship. And I think just like many things in life, once you get that book done, you'll look back and say, man, that was easier than I thought it would be. Yeah, I'll be saying that this is the same thing I told myself after after I did my first public speaking it took forever to get me to speak publicly. And then after I did, I was like, oh, this isn't that bad. And now I, I kind of enjoy the process, actually. So I'll probably tell myself that, like, why didn't I write a book sooner while, while I'm writing my, my seventh book or something? My last question for you on the hot seat is, what was it like hearing your father say that he was proud of you for chasing a dream? Best, best moment of my career right there. Uh, you know, you have to fully understand the context of this thing to understand why it was it's important to me. But I'm the only child in my family to obtain a college education. And so my dad went back to school late in life. He, he and I graduated from university. I think we actually graduated the same year. Yeah. He graduated this cause I, I, I had, I was in a five-year program. So I ended up with two bachelor's degrees and we graduated the same year. And he was, I have this picture of he and I together where he's on my graduation day and he's got his arm around me and he's got this smile of like contentment on his face. Like, yeah, that's my boy kind of look. And he was super proud of me for, um, you know, graduating not not only as a teacher but a math de- with a math degree because my dad was not academic to say the least. And, you know, he 
probably barely graduated high school. He's just one of those screw off students when he was a kid. And then later on in life in his mid thirties, he realized like, Hey, you know, I want to do something better with my life. So he went back and, and earned himself a nursing degree. And, you know, here I am teaching and four years into my career, I decide that I'm just going to walk away from this profession and pursue this career in mixed martial arts, which at the time wasn't even an established industry. I mean, for me to say, I'm going to go try out for an NFL team and see if I can make the team. That's different because at least if you make the team, like, yeah, look, my son made it to the NFL, but this, this was still banned in uh, 48 States. And so my dad, when I told him that I was quitting my, my job as a teacher in his mind, it was just me throwing away my education. And mm-hmm. The day that I told him this, he he looked at me as if I just had given him the worst news ever. I think I think actually I, I jokingly say this. I think my dad would have punched me if 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 I was not a professional fighter at the time. Not really, but you know I always always joke around about that. But you know my fa- fast forward and, and several years later, my dad is in Las Vegas watching me defend my title for the first time, and I met up with him at uh, the Luxor. It was uh, because the the event was at Mandalay Bay, no MGM that time. So I met him with the Luxor. It was the night before my weigh ends, and he was having dinner, and I was probably eating ice chips or something like that. And um, my he looked at me and he said, hey, "Man, I'm really I'm really proud of you for following your dreams and uh, pursuing something that you wanted to do, and and you know just relentlessly pushing forward, like kind of that message that how proud of me he was that I that I." you know, didn't fold to doing what, whatever everybody else does in life, you know, like taking the easy route. And, um, and you know, I I knew this, but that moment to me was way more important, way, way, way more important than, than any title I ever won. Truly. Well, Rich, man, you're off the hot seat now. And I want to thank you for being a part of the Brian Kane podcast and, for taking the time out of your crazy schedule and getting up super early over there in Singapore to be able to join us and do this. And, you know, for the listeners, if they've got questions or they're fans and they want to follow you and keep track of your, you know, escapades as you go around the world and representing one championship and kind of following what you're doing and checking out your show, what's the best way for them to to stay engaged with what Rich Franklin's doing? Probably my social media. Um, you can check me out my Facebook is Rich Franklin. I think Twitter is also Rich Franklin. And then um, the Instagram is at Rich, Rich Ace Franklin on Instagram. They're all verified accounts. So when you look it up, you'll, you'll know it's me. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm posting, typically posting messages of, of, of positivism out there, you know, things about nutrition, lifestyle, motivation, working out, what I got going on with the One Warrior Series, my travels, and, uh, and all my recruitment process and all that kind of stuff. Now, of course, that's kind of shut down at the moment and uh, we're all in quarantine. But uh, like I said before, I don't I don't view this this obstacle in life as an obstacle. It's an opportunity. It was an opportunity for me to launch my Franklin speaking podcast and uh, and get that up and rolling, man. So, um, you know, move onward and upward. And it's an opportunity for you to write the Franklin equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking forward to seeing that coming out, Rich. Well, so, I gotta, I gotta, I, you know what? I'm going to be pecking away on my computer when we get off here and seeing if I see if I have those files on my computer. If I got to find them on some other hard drive, I'm going to have to go back and redo the intro, man. Not only is a UFC world champion and a Hall of Famer, he's also a best-selling author of the Franklin Equation. Rich Franklin, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kane Podcast, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. Been awesome, brother. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to the Brian Kane Mental Performance Podcast on the Ironclad Content Network. 
If you liked the show, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Brian Kane Peak. That's at B R I A N C A I N P E A K. I'll see you next time.